The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime, whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. Now, here's health and wellness specialist Leah Brenda Smith. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety. I am your host, Leah Brenda Smith, and it's nice to welcome all the listeners and folks from Project Freedom Radio Network to today's show on Building Blocks for Healthy Relating. And naturally, as we begin to speak about this subject, we'll have to go into the past a little bit. But in the meantime, if you're looking for me on the net, you can find me at my personal website, LeahBrendaSmith.com, or on Facebook at the radio page, Come Back to Your Senses Radio, or LeahBrendaSmith.com. So here we go on our journey here into building blocks for healthy relating. Clearly, we're all very much shaped by those who raised us, our parents and our caregivers, We are the products of human relationships, and most of us spend our days within the context of relationships with other people. Some would say that we need other people to be close to us in our lives, or we would tend to get sick. And who we are is very much a function of where we've come from and who we surround ourselves with. So despite their virtual importance in our lives, relationships can be difficult to manage. We expect our intimate partners to provide for many of our needs, but often we find that differing expectations and frustrations and a need to be right create conditions for conflict, and that can really disturb intimacy. And even our children, they really test, uh, they're really a test of our weakness, and we don't always pass. We give in sometimes. Perhaps sometimes we give in when it would be best not to. You know, our adult parents grow older and require care, and this certainly adds other types of burdens and responsibilities in our relationships. And then also, we really require a diverse set of communication and relationship skills in order to be successful to meet the challenges of family life. But essentially, primarily, we learn how to be successful in relationships by experiencing them directly. Firstly, this starts by watching our parents and how they manage conflict successfully or unsuccessfully and stay true in their loving unions. And then, obviously, similarly, we do our best 
we do our best on learning how to become a good parent while being parented ourselves. And problems that are experienced in our early relationships are often expressed in our own behavior towards others. They do say child abusers were often themselves abused. And vital, as vital as relationship skills are, were seldom taught in school or other institutional settings. And all of this just adds up to the fact that many people end up making a mess of their relationships. And and partly this is because they've never really learned how to do them properly. We don't go to relationship school. We go to the school of hard knocks, I suppose. You know, there are many people that hope that once they leave home, that they'll leave their family and childhood problems behind. Now, I certainly felt this way. I remember as a young seven-year-old longing to be 40. Somehow in my mind, I thought that by then, all of the challenges that I was facing would be over. Yet, many people find that they experience similar problems, as well as similar feelings and relationship patterns long after they've left the family environment. Now, ideally, children grow up in a family environment which helps them to feel worthwhile and valuable. They learn that their feelings and their needs are important and can be expressed. And children growing up in such supportive environments are likely, or certainly more likely, to form healthy, open relationships in adulthood. However, some families may fail to provide for many of their children's emotional and physical needs. And in addition, the family's communication patterns may severely limit the child's expression or feelings and needs. And children growing up in these types of families are likely to develop low self-esteem and feel that their needs are not important or perhaps not to be taken seriously by others. And as a result, they may form unsatisfying relationships as adults. Or as life coach Dr. Hayugaha Cohen tells us, you may think that your parents did a wonderful job of rearing you. And if you think that they helped you to have a strong sense of self, and that they avoided doing things that made you grow into a fearful, neurotic, or insecure adult, So if you would be delighted to be just like your mother and your father, then she suggests that you are a lucky person indeed. Generally speaking, most of us believe that our parents messed up in some way. They gave us problems, and even if we love them dearly, at some level, we still hold them responsible for our vulnerabilities, although we tell ourselves that we've forgiven them. And this really applies to you if you wince whenever someone says, you're just like your mother or you're just like your father. Now, in order to have healthy adult relationships, at some point in our journey, we need to forgive our parents for the mistakes that they made and the hurts that we think or feel that they caused. Otherwise, we can never really fully grow up and we may still feel like children inside that are being victimized by adults. 
And if, like children, we have underlying resentments of our parents, then we can't be wise in rearing our own children. We relate to our own children in reaction to our parents. For instance, if your mother was critical and controlling, you might react by praising your child nonstop and setting no limits. But then your child may develop an unrealistic sense of self and feels undirected. So he or she may grow up resenting you for being uh, weak or spineless. And this child may react by imposing strict limits then on her own children, who resents her for it. And so they overindulge their kids. So in this way, you can see that unhealthy family traits get passed on down the line. And the pattern may take a different form in your family. But unless you're one of the lucky few, you can bet that some of your attitudes and life challenges have roots that originated generations ago. So at some point, the pattern has to stop, and it can stop with you. I remember thinking that when I was younger, that the patterns could stop at my generation. Now, to forgive your parents is the first step. And then you realize that you also need to forgive all the people who shaped your parents, and then the people who shaped your grandparents, and so on and so on. So whatever problem or issue your parents passed on to you, or no doubt passed on to them. And if we could trace the genealogy of our issues, we might find that what we're feeling challenged by today started 20, 30, or even 40 generations ago, and was passed from parent to child, from generation to generation. In my own personal experience, it wasn't until I learned more about the circumstances of how each of my parents grew up that I could really make sense of their emotional reactions and responses to the life that I was living while being raised by them. Then I could begin to understand my parents each individually in the context of their own childhood their relationships with their parents, with their siblings, and the socioeconomic circumstances of their child-rearing. It was then, it was only then, that I could see the real story, which helped me then to begin to work through my inner thoughts and feelings about all of it, to work to forgive my parents for the challenges that I experienced as a result of their interactions with me and the rest of my family. So I really encourage um, anyone that's feeling a need for that, that it's uh, well worth the journey to go into your own experience of forgiveness with your parents and your grandparents and your ancestry and whatever challenges are that you deal with that you say, oh yeah, that's in my family line, they've always been like that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da things can change with your generation. You know, clearly relating and relationships are the very base of our life. And there are basic ideas that most people subscribe to that ensure that relationships maintain a balance. Yet, 
when we are most stressed, that's when we tend to take things out on the people around us, whether it's your coworker, a clerk at the store, the waiter, family members, friends, and partners. At the end of the show today, I'm going to share with you the four most important words for maintaining a healthy relationship. But in the meantime, let's let's bear in mind that healthy relating is, uh, let's look at it as an art rather than a science. There are no exact rules or procedures, standard phrases or approaches that are foolproof and that will work every time in every situation, with every person. However, as with any art form, you can use building blocks for healthy relating as guidelines that will help you to cultivate your relating skills as you develop your own approaches. And how do we do this? Through trial and error through a willingness to be flexible and compassionate both with yourself and with the person or the people that you are relating to. Now, we all have had relationships that we use as models for things that worked well or that work well. And we also have examples of other things that didn't work well or don't work well at all. And in all relationships, regardless of the nature of your exchange, there's times when things are smooth sailing and everyone feels respected and supported, and other times when they're more like a day on the high seas. You know, we could look at relationships uh, through that uh, good old-fashioned basic chemistry type of approach. And this is not exclusive to the animal attraction kind of chemistry that gets our heart pumping and our bodies tingling in a most delightful way. But sometimes chemistry is fiery and explosive. Sometimes it's wishy-washy or teary, other times playful or silly, or deeply nurturing and satisfying. And sometimes it's even downright embarrassing or insulting. And although healthy relating is a lifetime adventure, it's a journey, not a destination. It's not something that you graduate from, but rather something that you keep improving on with time and experience and maturity. But let's explore some building blocks that can increase the health of your relational skills and some pitfalls to watch out for that can make things easier on everyone involved. Here's an example to launch our exploration. The tone in someone's voice can play a huge role in the energy exchange between two people. You know, at some point we've all either heard and or said, it's not what you said that bothered me, it's the way that you said it. Now, communication is likely the top most agreed-upon important building block to healthy relating. Communicate, communicate, communicate. I've often heard people say that love is not enough, or we love each other but, 
and certainly approaching one another in a loving way is a healthy ingredient in any interaction. Yet love without action and follow-through can lead to frustration. You know that other common phrase, action speaks louder than words? Empty promises have no place in healthy relating. At times, certainly, people use all the right words, they say all the right things, which can smooth things over in a moment. Yet if the words are not backed up by legitimate actions, then the difficulties that arose, which prompted the nice words, that perhaps appeased momentarily, those difficulties will just continue to rise again and again and continue to create challenges. Often enough, as part of the journey towards healthy relating and healthy relationships, people have a tendency to want to sweep all of that debris that they once swept under the carpet. They want to stir it up or clean it up. They want to clean the history of a relationship. And this approach is often most tempting in family relationships. But bear in mind that it takes the agreement of two mature and mindful people to engage in this kind of a process. And without mutual agreement, to use this approach to bring up or restore health to a relationship, the likely outcome will be just the opposite of what it is that you're trying to achieve. If you don't have the agreement of the other person, you'll be likely faced with defensiveness, accusations, and just further conflict. You know, it takes the willingness of two people to sift through the debris, so to speak, and speak openly in a compassionate, honest way about the participation of both of the people involved in the events. I used to think that I couldn't heal my relationships without the other person's participation. And then I came to appreciate that I could do what I needed to do within myself in order to heal, even without the other person joining in the process. You know, there's no one right way to approach this. There's lots of options available. Here's just a few of them. Mindfulness, meditation, journaling, energy-based healing treatments, counseling, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, honesty. You know, any or all of these approaches can be helpful companions on the journey. Now, as for the other person, I found that even without the other person actively participating in cleaning up the past, when you do your work, you'll be much more mindful of the dynamics of your interactions. So if there is indeed an imbalance in any type of relationship, when you spend time with that person, sooner or later the challenging dynamics will present themselves in some way between you. And then in that present moment, you will have the opportunity to respond or to communicate from a new perspective, your new perspective of health, in a more grounded and focused way. 
You don't always need to dredge up the past with everyone in order to reframe your relationship or the way that you relate with one another. You can bring a relationship into a healthy light by doing the work just even within yourself. I've also found it helpful to uh, look at themes. You know, there are certain themes that may come up again and again in the ways that you relate with other people, regardless of the type of relationship. And although you may find that some things surface more in friendships, other things may be more in family relationships, some things may be just specific to partners, or other things you experience only at work, it's quite common for people to have the same challenges surface in all of their relationships, or most of them, just in different degrees or different depths. And you can use this information to help you to improve your relational skills. See the themes as signs that are pointing you to the specific things that you need to be more flexible about or perhaps you need to let go of or things you may need to work through. If you keep hearing the same things from several people or if you keep bumping up against the same challenges in all of your relationships, then chances are this is a theme for you to work through and uh, indication that it would be good for you to look at this in a new way, to be more mindful of this particular aspect in yourself. And many of us are familiar with the idea of agreeing to disagree, because clearly we don't always agree with the choices that other people make. And funnily enough, even from day to day, we may not even agree with the choices that we make. You know, there can be differences in our politics or religious views, family values, our work ethics, and so on. Yet it's still possible to put the differences aside, recognize that you're agreeing to disagree, and focus on the things that really draw the two of you together. Think what drew you together in the first place, whether it was work or leisure activities, family, partnerships, or friendships. Another very healthy, healthy thing to adopt in terms of having good relations is agreeing to wait until you cool down. You know, when you're in the midst of an argument, and if you think that it is really beginning to escalate, really take the time to go for a walk or some other activity that can put some time and distance between the two of you. Take a time out so you can come back to your senses and be in a better position to approach the subject from a more balanced place. And this can be very healthy for everyone involved. So that's something that you should build into your relationships, whether they're friendships or partnerships. Even in work situations, it's even can be important to take a time or take a step back even when you first feel yourself starting to get rattled up. I have found, too, that sometimes making requests and not demands can be very healthy. You know, we may find ourselves at an impasse with someone over certain behaviors or needs in ourselves or in the other person. 
But before getting into an argument or throwing in the towel, you could try making a request. Sometimes you may find that you're relating with someone that tends to focus primarily on the glass being half empty or is often pessimistic. You could make a request of them to focus on the glass being half full or being optimistic during your conversations or your time together. I tried that one time with somebody when we uh, went to go out for the evening and, you know, started off the evening with the, the regular kind of down spiral into negativity and complaining. And, and right off the bat, I said, hey, what about if we just leave our troubles behind for the evening and just go out and enjoy ourselves? And I was making a request and it worked perfectly. We had a great time. Then another thing that we might like to try for healthy relating is to inform the other person. Inform the other person when you need some time to vent. You know, in early years, I tended to go on and on in the venting department about something I was struggling with or an impasse in personal relationships. So I was using this activity as a way of venting Yet the venting was only serving the moment. It was one of those uh, short-term gain for long-term pain. You know, venting can be very healthy when you get permission from the other person and give a time limit for the activity. Otherwise, you may be hijacking the other person, hijacking the other person. And without a time limit, you're likely to just go around in circles over the same few issues that you are disgruntled about. But when venting is used for the purpose of letting something go so you can move on or get clear about an issue so that you can then take the appropriate action, then the activity can be healthy. And the person that's listening to you while you vent is really doing a great service. However, if you're venting about the same thing or the same person over and over and over again and you don't put limits on the activity, then you are hijacking the other person's time and energy, which is not a healthy way of relating. You know, if you or someone you know tends to have people coming to you or the same person coming to you with undisciplined venting or complaining about their woes whether they're medical or financial about relationships or family and that's a perfect opportunity for you to set some boundaries set some limits on the use of your time and energy when the issues are deep and systemic and relenting then journaling and counseling are a better choice than gobbling up time and energy in your friendships and yourself by relentlessly going around and around with no resolve and no action or no movement, no movement in any new direction. So that's a good way for you to care for yourself and to care for the people that you care about. And then listening while the other person is talking. Listen, listen, and then listen some more. You know, there's that saying that the reason that we were born with two ears and with one mouth is that we need to listen twice as much as we speak. And sometimes, while we may appear to be listening, we may actually be busy in our minds formulating what we want to say next. And let's realize that this is not listening. 
This is thinking about what it is that you want to say next. Regardless of whether or not you're thinking what you're thinking about is related to the subject, the other person is speaking about or not. Listening is its own activity. And although many people think that it's a passive activity, really listening, really listening takes focus, energy, intent, and presence of mind. Especially if you intend to engage with and reflect back to the person that's talking. Well, we all do it. We all interrupt sometimes. We all have moments when we think that what we want to share is more important or that we have the right or the real answer and on and on, whatever the story is that goes on inside of our minds about communication. But in healthy relating, both individuals are engaged in the conversation. One is talking and the other is actively listening. And when you notice your mind wandering off while listening, or you have, you're having that urge to interrupt or override the other person's conversation. Recognize it as a sign or a gentle reminder for you to bring your focus back to listening to the person that is talking. And this will automatically increase not only your participation in the conversation, but increase your healthy relating skills. Remember, Communication and conversation always involves one person listening and one person talking. And common courtesy is certainly a high, high up there on healthy relating skills. You know, simple things like please and thank you, or excuse me, or I'm sorry, they're just common courtesy. And common courtesy is definitely a building block to healthy relating. And even simple things like restoring the environment when you share personal or professional space with other people. Or you're a visitor in somebody's personal or professional space. If you use something, put it back. If you make a mess, clean it up. If you break something, tell the person. This shows that you respect their personal or professional space. And even when an orderly environment is not a top priority for the person whose space you're in, restoring the environment is still always an expression of health, of respect, and of healthy relating. And ask people what they need, rather than telling people what they need. You know, our needs are not necessarily the same as another person's. What I might need to feel safe and comfortable or to be heard or understood, to feel loved or respected or valued, it may not be what you need. And asking, can I do something for you or can I get something for you or simply let me know if there's anything that you need is very helpful. And even when you think you know what the other person needs, it's good practice to ask before offering. As an example, you can say, hmm, it feels to me as if you could use uh, some time with your friends. Is that right? Or I get a sense that you may need some time alone. Or something as simple as, it's cold outside. Do you think maybe you need a warmer jacket? So asking people what they need instead of telling them. 
telling them what they need. Ask people what they need. And Jerry Lopper has some interesting perspectives to share about relationships. And he said it's fundamental to making relationships strong and healthy is the foundation on which it can grow. Like life itself, relationships are dynamic and they're ever-changing because we're always changing. Strong relationships require nurturing. And commitment to the relationship means unconditionally caring about maintaining and improving the relationship. Even during the times of anger or disappointment, now, there may be times when you aren't even sure you like the other person, but if you're committed, you'll spend the effort to sustain the relationship during the tough times. You know, freedom may be the toughest component of all to implement, but it may also be the most important after commitment. All humans desire freedom. They desire freedom more than they more than they desire freedom, it, it's a drive that we all have within ourselves, really, to be ourselves. You know, from the time we're two years old and we proclaim, I can do it myself. And then the 22-year-old who forgoes the family business to go her own way, we all want freedom to do it our own way. And while we each crave and value our own freedom, we often have just as strong a drive to control others. And some may think it's a carryover from parenting or a way of our sh really assuring our own freedoms, but controlling another person is a sure way to weaken and damage relationships, and that's certainly not healthy relating. Granting another person the freedom to be themselves, though, to stretch and to grow, or to wither and to stagnate, is really the ultimate result of love, unconditional love. Now, the freedom that's inherent in unconditional love may test our own feelings of self-confidence and self-esteem. Yet it's very important for us to realize that we bring people towards us when we let go of any inclination to control them, which is perhaps the exact opposite of how we might think of it in our minds. And then there is that R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect as Aretha Franklin sings. You know, it's a critical component of freedom. It's the partner of freedom in that respecting another person's competence and individuality provides the positive support that's so important to freedom. Let me give you a contrast that shows this. Suppose someone grants you the freedom to follow your dreams, but underlying they have a current of disrespect. It might sound something like this. Go ahead if you must, but I'll be right here after you've chased that dream. So in other words, the person thinks that you'll fail and you'll come crawling back or some other similar scenario. But for the same situation, if you approached it with respect, it might sound like, go ahead, I know how important that is to you, and I support you 100%. I know you can do it. Now, obviously, we all like to hear the second response because of the inherent respect and support that it 
conveys. And supporting the people we care about is an important factor of healthy relating. You know, as we stretch ourselves, as we encounter rough spots and obstacles, a supportive relationship gives strength and reassurance. Support rejuvenates and re-energizes. And we're all attracted to people who are supportive. Now, equality. Equality is really the enabler that says we're both equal in this marriage or partnership or friendship. You know, a parent-child relationship is fine for teens or for younger children. But amongst partners and friends and adult children and their parents, without that underlying recognition of equality, respect is limited. And support is more controlling than supportive. And commitment is probably more towards control than it is towards growth. Another important building block for healthy relating is to have healthy conflict resolution. You know, it can soothe those rough rough edges of relating. Now, there will always be disagreements and differences of opinions and even disappointments. But some knowledge and some techniques and a dedication to resolve conflict with respect and support and equality can actually strengthen a relationship. And then trust. Some would say that trust is really the relationship glue. You know, it's an attitude that could have been mentioned first. But without our inherent trust of each other, we'll be unable to grant freedom to treat each other with respect and equality, and to be supportive. Now, some say that trust is earned, but perhaps trust must be an assumed attitude that's fundamental to commitment to a relationship. If someone distrusts you until you prove trustworthy, then you cannot provide the freedom, respect, and support that can nurture and strengthen healthy relating. And here are a few of those um, perhaps common, well worth mentioning pitfalls, like taking things too personally. You know, behavior is always communicating something. And for healthy relating, it's important to know that the things that people say and do are about them. And the way that you react or respond is about you. So being mindful of this can help you to be clear about the difference between your thoughts and your feelings and beliefs and actions and the other person's thoughts and feelings and beliefs and actions. Sometimes people are saying things to you, so you may seem that it's directed at you, but really it's not. It's really about them. So when you have this perspective and this clarity, then it's more possible to determine what it is that you think and what it is the other person thinks and that your thoughts and your feelings may be different from the other person. 
And then there's always the pitfall of blaming the other person for how you feel. You know, ownership and responsibility is so important. So important for healthy relating. If you're feeling something, it's yours. And if they're feeling something, it's theirs. So starting a statement with, you make me, or you made me feel, think, do, say, believe, act, or respond. This is a blaming way. This is blaming the other person. And as Byron Katie says, she says that defense is the first act of war in relationship or in the way that you relate to another person. So what you feel is yours and what they feel is theirs. So more appropriately, as people commonly say, you want to make I statements. Speak about your own experience. Speak about how it is that you're feeling. And know that how it is that you're feeling may be a response to what someone else said or did. But they didn't make you feel that way. They did or said what they did, and you responded the way that you did. And then there's that pitfall that's called nagging. You know, there clearly there's those times when we're we're prompting people that we're in relationship with, and we do it with their best interest in mind. We might be suggesting anything, better food choices, that they go to bed early so they get enough sleep. We may be trying to support them with addictions, or we may be encouraging our children to do our homework or to take better care of their things. Yet when support and encouragement turn into trying to micromanage the people around us, that is not support. That is control, and that is nagging. That's not responding to a need in the other person. That's responding to your need to control. So let's be clear that control is always about the needs of the controller and is not a useful approach for healthy relating. And there's uh, the pitfall of taking too much responsibility for the other person or for the person that you're in relationship with or relating to. You're not responsible for another person's experience. They have their experience and you have your experience. You know, I learned this lesson really well when I was teaching Reiki full-time. I was taking far too much personal responsibility for my students and far too much responsibility for the people that were coming to me in my treatment practice. Through my own process of growth, I learned that I'm responsible for the teaching and how the students incorporate the teaching. I'm responsible just for the teaching, not for how the students incorporate the teaching into their lives. And as a practitioner, I'm responsible for my skills as a professional, my energy and the way that I care for the person during the treatment. However, I am not responsible for the way that that person treats themselves outside of the time that I'm providing the professional service that they came to me for. So just want to be mindful of that tendency. We can have a tendency to take too much personal responsibility for other people. 
And it's good to take a moment to to ponder the subject of boundaries and all the ways that boundaries serve us in our life, both professionally and personally. You know, boundaries are, in essence, the lines that mark where the emotional and physical space of one person ends and the other one begins. There can be seen as those invisible borders over which we should not cross without permission, as some would say. Now, we can have strong, healthy boundaries, weak boundaries, or even overly rigid boundaries. But really, boundaries help us really to value and respect ourselves, your time, your feelings, your desires, your wants and your needs. And when you set flexible boundaries based on love and compassion, not on fear, then things really are working much better for everybody. Set boundaries because of self-preservation, not out of fear. And boundaries help you to define your moral values. And it makes it easier for you to refuse to agree to anything that would go against the things that you value. You know, people that have unhealthy boundaries may end up saying yes to things that they don't really feel good about doing or things that go against their values. So, as an example, if you value honesty and a friend asks you to lie for him or her, and she or he may even have a compelling reason for their request, respecting your personal values will require you and actually enable you to say no. And when you have healthy boundaries, then you're able to say no clearly with compassion. And you can use your feelings to help you define your boundaries. So whenever someone makes a request, imagine saying yes and notice how you feel. And then imagine saying no and notice how you feel. And if you imagine yourself saying yes and you feel warm and a sense of relief or excitement, then saying yes might be the appropriate answer. But if you feel a contraction or a tightening in your body or increased tension, then saying yes may not be the correct choice for you. And then asking for help when you need it. Sometimes people that are rigid with their boundaries, um, they're not good at asking for help when they need it. They don't recognize that reciprocity and shared responsibility is part of healthy relating. So when you feel that you don't have the skills to do something correctly or you feel overwhelmed by a task, then asking for help or even delegating a part of the work may be all you need to restore your boundaries. You know, there is that old proverb, "Mm, good fences make good neighbors. And this has managed to survive centuries for a reason. Because it holds true that well-defined boundaries are good for you and everyone you interact with. Building good boundaries, appropriate boundaries for self-preservation is very, very smart. 
very smart indeed. Hmm. Sometimes it takes practice. I certainly had to learn that. People that grow up in more uh, chaotic or um, unorganized environments um, can tend to have more uh, challenges with that or even may take a little bit more time to realize the importance and the value actually of, of having boundaries. And got a few suggestions here from Rabbi Yaakov Solomon. You know, it's uh, pondering that God created a, us in a world that demands interactions with others. And really, how do we do this? It can be complex. So Rabbi Yaakov Solomon's just got a few suggestions here that I that I appreciated. And he speaks about common goals and objectives. He said, you may not be 100% certain about your objectives in life, and that's okay, but you need to know enough about them to see if your relationship, the people that you're in relationship with are on the same page, or at least in the same chapter. Because without goals or objectives, your relationships will lack a bearing and a direction, and over time they'll just stagnate. And then appreciation. Everyone wants to be appreciated, clearly. But healthy relationships take this, take this concept much further. Now, e- each person contributes different qualities to a relationship. The qualities aren't necessarily balanced. One might give more of a bulk of uh, the financial support. The other may carry more of the social and emotional responsibility. But true appreciation means that you really value what the other person brings to, to the relationship. And you're grateful for every contribution. And those involved in relationships that are uniquely special do exactly that. They see and understand the characteristics that make their partnership special. They convey that feeling in a sincere and loving way. And they never lose sight of what makes them exceptional. And then giving and taking. Giving and taking are the ways in which our needs get satisfied. And in every good relationship, balance of these concepts is essential. But but it doesn't mean that each of us must give 50% and take 50%. Real balance is achieved when you understand how it works in each unique relationship. Now, you may be very generous with your money but less so with your time. Or you may be very needy of compliments and affirmation, but material gifts and possessions are meaningless to you. So one person may end up doing 70% of the giving, but the balance can still be perfect. The key is to know yourself and know the other person. When you know what you need most and what you're capable of giving, then the delivery system works perfectly. You know, the better you know yourself and each other, the better you'll both be able to get what you need and give what you should. 
And then communication is the means by which feelings and emotions are transmitted and processed. And naturally, words are the building blocks of good communication. But much of how we feel and what we need is conveyed through body language, through our moods, and through our expressions. And true freedom is the ability to intelligently evaluate your choices before acting. And communicating well involves an assessment of what to say, and when to say it, and how to say it, and also the importance of knowing when to say absolutely nothing at all. And then healing with forgiveness. Some would say life is short and complicated and precious. And if you allow your sensitivities to dominate, then you will forever be depressed or resentful and getting your feelings hurt. You may also feel lonely if that is your stance. Now, nobody wants to bond with people who are stuck in a victim role all the time. And a great relationship does not get bogged down by, you know, the things that don't happen well in life. It moves on. And people take things in their stride. You know, none of us are perfect, as the saying goes. Mm, We're always a work in progress. And we all make mistakes. We do it all the time. Someone said once, was that 10% human error? We got to make a margin for that. Well, we tend to say the wrong things. We're impatient. Sometimes we're selfish. We can be demanding. And on top of all that, there's that tendency to always think that we're right. Now, while children hold grudges, mature adults allow for imperfection and to forgive. They see the big picture, and they weigh the indiscretions with appropriate measure. So your ability to admit when you're wrong goes a long way in helping the forgiveness process to develop and to endure. Your ability to admit when you're wrong goes a long way to healthy relating. You know, for some it's so difficult to utter the words, I was wrong. But ask yourself this question. Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And anticipating the oncoming red flags and working proactively is a great way to avoid the need for forgiveness. So if you know the people that you're relating to and you know that your partner just can't stand having to wait for you, then making that extra effort to be on time becomes essential. And if clutter drives your partner up the wall, make it your business to be tidier, even though neatness may be totally unimportant to you. And as as promised, I have uh, the tip for you that I mentioned earlier. And this is a tip from the John Tesh radio show. The question was, what are the four most important words that can maintain the health of your relationship, that can maintain healthy relating? 
And the answer is, how was your day? Surveys suggest that asking your significant other, how was your day, is a perfect way to ensure that you're engaging in conversation that's not about household chores, finances, children, or schedules. And many folks contend that it's easy to lose sight of having conversations that are not focused on the activities of daily living and that they miss that opportunity to just talk and share about things that happened in their day or to share their inner perceptions and their personal joys and aspirations. So remember these four words. How was your day? And if you're inclined to be more verbose, you could make it five words and add a prefix of a honey or a sweetheart or whatever endearing word you use for your significant other. The important pivot point for this working is to increase or maintain the health of your relationship. This is the important thing. Once you ask, how was your day? Be sure to listen to the answer and not interrupt by sharing how your day was. Wait your turn, because this will ensure happy, healthy relating in your relationships. It's been a pleasure to share with you some building blocks for healthy relating. I'm your ever-grateful host, and you've been listening to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety. And until next week, I wish all of us happy, healthy relating and that we should relax and enjoy our lives. We hope you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life. Thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. Please join Leah Brenda Smith again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you next week.